All right, I suspect that most of us find that long familiarity with Scripture, Scripture stories, can sometimes make us inattentive to their details. It's enough to make you envious of those hearing these stories for the first time. I find that I am prone to this inattention, even when reading about one of the ways in which God sensibly reveals himself to his, his chosen people, the Theophanies, which the Jews reverently call the Shekinah, or presence of God. I can complacently, I can do this, and maybe you can do it. I can complacently, complacently hear about, for example, God appearing to Abraham as a smoking fire pot in Genesis. Apparently thinking to myself, naturally, couldn't be any other way, right? So too, my imagination being accustomed to Jacob's uh, stairway to heaven, or his wrestling with God, or the angel, right? also in Genesis, can somehow not, I can somehow not be struck by the peculiarity of these visions or these experiences. But surely God manifested himself in these singular ways for good reasons. Surely we shouldn't simply nod and let them go, as though there are no mysteries to be plumbed here, as though whatever God's motives may have been for choosing such veils, they can only be minutiae that he doesn't want us to waste our time ruminating on. No. As long as we grant that every word of Scripture is inspired, we will also believe that every detail it records is of some significance, of some relevance to salvation history. And that this would especially be so in the case of God's visible manifestations or theophanies. Something is going on in each of these cases, even if we haven't the faintest idea what it is. These eye-catching oddities and our remarkable ability to ignore them is part of the reason why it's often so helpful to read these stories in their original languages, or if this is not possible, in a different translation. Hearing the same thing, told the same way, can lull one to sleep. Whereas a novel way of saying the same thing, particularly the resonances in the original languages, provoke the mind to be alert and to discover new connections. That being so, in this talk, I want to reflect upon the meaning of the burning bush, mentioned near the beginning of the book of Exodus. This is one of those those instances where I think that it's easy to let the incongruity slide on by our imagination, even though the magnitude of the very event that it initiates is enormous for the burning bush, recall, signals the beginning of the most momentous and defining moment in the history of the sons of Israel, namely their liberation from Egypt and their 40-year journey to the Promised Land. Unlike, for example, Jacob's ladder or Abraham's smoking firepot, the burning bush has become iconic, it's probably the best-remembered image God took, uh, took on to address his, the chosen people. Indeed, the New Testament is uh, silent about the other theophanies I mentioned, while the burning bush is given some prominence in the Gospels of Luke and Mark and in the book of Acts. It was, after all, Moses' first direct contact with the God of his people. It was both Moses' calling and the bugle call for the salvation of the Hebrews toiling under the lash in Egypt. So before one even knew what veil God would choose for this occasion, one would expect it to be something significant and therefore worth wondering about. By offering you my own speculations about what to make of the burning bush imagery, I will show you, I hope, that this sort of wondering can pay off. Now, insofar as the bush itself is mentioned, we're talking about a fairly brief passage, so I will begin by quoting it in full. It occurs 
After Moses has fled from his adopted grandfather Pharaoh into the land of Midian, he has married Zipporah, the daughter of the priest of Midian, and they have had a son. All the while, Moses is apparently unaware of his destiny or even that his Egyptian grandfather has died and that nevertheless the sons of Israel are suffering still more under a new Pharaoh. Yahweh, however, has heard their cry and is about to call Moses, who is tending sheep on Mount Sinai. So this is quote number one in the handout. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and lo, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. Then he said, Do not come near. Put off your shoes from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the land of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Yahweh goes on to tell Moses of his role as emissary to Pharaoh and then as leader of the Israelites, first by taking them here to this very mountain to worship Yahweh, and then north to Canaan, the land of promise. Moses first expresses doubt about his being qualified to address Pharaoh, so God promises to be with him. But then Moses tries a different tack by saying that, not that Pharaoh won't believe him, but that his own people won't. And God is ready for this too. God reveals his proper name to Moses, Yahweh, I am who am. By this, in a way that's not explained, and I've always wondered at, the people of Israel, God says, will know that Moses has been sent by the God of their fathers. Moses' dialogue with God, who is all the while speaking from the burning bush, goes on for dozens more verses, well into the next chapter, largely because of Moses' resistance to the part he is to play in God's plan. Nevertheless, I've given you what I think are the relevant parts of it. So now we come to the question. Why would God want to communicate this message of liberation and vocation in such a way that he appeared to be in, or speak from within, a burning bush? One approach to this question is uh, by first breaking it into two. Why a burning bush? And why a bush at all? Take the first part first. Surely, fire and burning conjure visions of violence and destruction, things we associate with pain and death. And I don't think I need to give you too many examples to convince you that this connotation dominates references to fire in both the Old and New Testaments, especially in the context of divine retribution. Let me give a couple, though. More than a couple. In Leviticus... At the dedication of the Holy of Holies, a fire comes forth from God and consumes the offering on the altar. This event then becomes the exemplar of all sacrifice as requiring the burning of the offering. Here the fire destroys, but it's not clearly doing so as a punishment, except perhaps vicariously. In Deuteronomy, however, Yahweh repeatedly commands the Israelites to punish the sins of the Canaanites by fire, burning their idols, their sacred groves, groves, and their very cities. By the time of the prophet Ezekiel, God is promising a similar conflagration to consume the wicked inhabitants of Jerusalem itself. 
Likewise, in the Psalms, we are told that, quote, on the wicked he will rain coals of fire and brimstone, end quote. And the prophet Elijah commands the heavens to do just that to the soldiers of the king of Samaria. In a similar incident, the apostles James and John ask for Christ's permission to do the same thing to the Samaritans when the latter rejected him, though Christ rebukes them. And, of course, there's the recurring images of eternal punishment presented in the Gospels and the book of Revelations. They always include fire, whether literally as in the lake of fire or in the metaphor of wheat and chaff, the former being saved and the latter being consigned to the flames. Likewise, the figure of speech where fire describes passions in the Bible tends to target either the feeling of anger, as in God's wrath blazed up against them, or jealousy, as in the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God, or lust, as Solomon says, lust is a fire in a man's heart, and St. Paul says it is better to marry than to burn. How can such symbolism or connotations fit the burning bush? Why would God manifest himself to Moses through the standard image of a destroyer, especially when his message is one of liberation? Fire is not typically a sign of hope or of new life, but one of finality and obliteration. And if one answers by proposing that the Pharaoh and the Hebrews' Egyptian taskmasters are the ones being indicated as fuel for the fire, which seems plausible enough, still, why such a diminutive fire? Fire often comes much bigger, especially in the Old Testament. Why not something grand or powerful-seeming, as when Yahweh later appears to the newly liberated Hebrews on this same mountain when Sinai is engulfed in flame and smoke, or a little later as the pillar of fire that leads them into the desert and into Canaan? After all, this probably knee-high fire did not seem threatening to Moses, so one can imagine how it would seem to Pharaoh. Related to the size of the fire... Consider the thing that is burning. Why would God pick a bush? Again, why not something of size? Something spectacular like a sea or a comet or a tornado. Or if it must be something alive, why not an animal like a lion or an eagle? If it must be a plant, why not a tree? Like one of those cedars of Lebanon that we hear about so often in the later books of the Old Testament. And if not a tree, why not a flower? Something of beauty. Why a bush, a shrub, a modest desert plant? One almost wonders with whether, if Moses had had a microscope, God might have appeared from a burning amoeba. Right? Why would God appear almost feeble and even humble at this first theophany to Moses, especially when he's trying to motivate and strengthen Moses by removing his doubts? A small flaming plant, even if it talks, is wondrous but not exactly awesome. Putting the two elements together, uh, not only do we have the peculiar juxtaposition of God appearing as a force of punitive destruction embedded in a small plant, but this does not even seem capable of burning the bush. So it is not only small but impotent. This does not seem to fit God, the one who in the same passage identifies himself as transcending all of reality because unlike every other creature, He is the one whose very nature it is to exist. Power, dignity, and absolute superiority should be indicated by whatever figure through which God chooses to appear. And yet, Moses is addressed by a little shrub 
that appears to be on fire, and yet the fire is too weak to burn it. Doesn't seem appropriate, much less awe-inspiring. Moses himself is struck not by the thought, a burning bush that's not really burning must be God. I'll go see whether he has something to tell me. But rather, he's struck by the thought, a burning bush that's not really burning. That's weird. I'll go have a closer look. He was no doubt surprised when a voice rose from within the bush calling him by name. A burning bush, even one that is not consumed in the burning, just doesn't seem like God material. Now, maybe I should take a moment to acknowledge some plausible answers to my puzzle and even a straightforward way of short-circuiting it altogether. First, one cannot deny that the pyrotechnics in the bush are there, first of all, to get Moses' attention, which they do. Moses notices the bush, and most importantly, that it burns without being consumed from a distance, which suggests he watches it for a while. A solitary burning bush is not that odd by itself, apparently, for he decides to have a closer look only after he notices that the fire blazes but does not quickly burn out, as one would expect a fire burning in a bush in the desert to do. So obviously, God picks this veil in part just to attract Moses' interest. Fair enough. But because God could have done this in so many other ways, this explanation is woefully incomplete. Just leave it to your imagination. Lots of things God could have done to get Moses' attention, and he does other times. Second, it's surely also true that one of God's motivations for assuming the guise of the burning bush was that, as St. Thomas and others suggest, was that by picking such a lowly form of life, the Lord prevents us from mistaking the Shekinah, the image of the divine presence, for the divine nature itself. God does not want us to believe that he's literally a bush, even one that burns without burning out. Indeed, the very multiplicity of appearances it takes on, now a burning bush, now a column of cloud, now three men, now an exploding mountain, etc. This very multiplicity itself prevents one from mistaking God for his manifestations. Indeed, even in an individual case taken by itself, God, by taking on the form of something vastly inferior to ourselves, helps us to recognize a veil as a veil. This is why often when an angel appears in Scripture, he often has to explain that he is not God himself, since he presumably looks divine, or the way one would imagine God would look. Thus, the burning bush can be explained by saying that this very incongruity has a theological and pedagogical motive to prevent us from thinking God essentially resembles anything here below, and therefore possibly falling into idolatry. Still, this explanation gives only a general reason why God would appear as a burning bush. It would work just as well if God had appeared here as a rock or as a fire pot. If we want a reason for why God would appear as exactly this sort of thing, then we have to give the question more thought. As for the possible way of dispensing with the burning bush puzzle altogether I mentioned a moment ago, consider this. You may have noticed when I read Exodus a moment ago that the burning bush is not at first described as God, but as an angel. Specifically, the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a flame, flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. That was verse 2. Doesn't this, one might ask, render my question moot, or at least less important? For the paradox is somewhat less paradoxical now. It's not God who is described as a burning bush, but merely an angel. Yet, leaving aside the supposition that it's not uh, all that intriguing that an angel would take on the appearance of a burning bush, 
I think the dilemma still stands. For although verse 2 does say it's an angel that appears in the fiery bush, this is not the passage's consistent description. The very next verse, God himself is said to be in the bush. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush. Right? Indeed, this ambiguity about whether the sensed shape of God, uh, or the, sen- the sensed shape, the visible manifestation is God himself, or merely an angel, runs throughout the Old Testament theophanies. A veritable roller coaster of an example can be found in Genesis when Abraham intercedes for the city of Sodom. This is the second quote I give you there. The account opens by saying that, that the Lord appeared to Abraham. And the same verse, the very same verse, three men stood before Abraham. Unless you think this is just a slip of the scribe's plume, this same vacillation occurs several times just a few verses later. They said to Abraham, Where is Sarah your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you in the spring, and Sarah your wife will have a son. Then the men set out from there and looked toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? No, for I have chosen him. So the Lord, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous men uh, in the city, etc., and, then the, and the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham. This apparent inconsistency is compounded when the next chapter opens with, the two angels came to Sodom in the evening. This isn't given. But it's chapter 19, verse 1. And just to show you that the previous idiom has not been left behind, the angels are then twice called men. right? And then again, angels. And finally, in a single verse, they are called both men and the Lord. That's verse 16, if you want to look that up. Did the author of Genesis not notice how incoherent he was? Even the contemporary approach offered by the source critics, who will say that this is just a result of the tampering of redactors wanting to read Yahweh into a story that originally made no mention of him. Even this uh, approach doesn't solve things. It's not adequate. For even were we to grant that the confusion is a result of a ham-fisted redactor, still... Uh, if one stands by the principle that at least the finished product of Scripture is inspired, you will conclude that God intended something more profound than what the human author or authors intended. Thus, even the modern approach leaves the question intact. Somehow, there is no contradiction in describing the same beings as men, angels, and God himself. How can we reconcile this? Well, Calling the figures Abraham addresses men is easy enough to explain. Perhaps this is simply what they looked like. Clearly, this is what, uh, what the men of Sodom thought they looked like when they, reached to, uh, they tried to assault them. Right? Abraham himself offers them food when he first sees them. However, harmonizing the, the designation angels and the Lord is more difficult. Some try to, try to do so by saying, that two of the three figures are angels, and one is God himself. But this approach doesn't fit the feel of the text. I'll let you judge this for yourself as you look over those, these two chapters, but the text really seems to me to be using the three designations fairly interchangeably. So perhaps a better but still more obscure resolution is as simple as saying that God and the angels are present in the three men, 
quote, I guess for those in quotation marks, right? The three men. Yahweh, speaking immediately through angels themselves, made visible as men. That is, the angels may be the immediate causes of what Abraham, Lot, and others see, but God himself is the one who is speaking, and perhaps this is even the immediate cause of the vocal sounds. He, he is perhaps the immediate cause of the vocal sounds that they hear, the voice. Right? In light of these thoughts, then, let us look back at Exodus. Here I'd say we have God present and speaking from out of the burning bush. That is immediately, perhaps, the effect of an angel. Well, I grant it's difficult to understand why God would prefer this sort of dual mediation involving both an angel and the visual tactile appearance of the burning bush. My point is merely that saying that the burning bush is the work of an angel does not mean that it is not God himself who is present as well. Any more than the presence of a translator or of an assistant implies the absence of the one being translated or being assisted. And this text itself clearly asserts Yahweh's presence, if any does, for only he is said to speak from the bush. Thus, whatever the role of the angel, God's is still more central. And thus our question endures. Why would God appear to Moses under the form of a burning bush? Just as I a moment ago atomized the question by distinguishing the appropriateness of the image of a fire from that of the image of a bush, I'll try to answer the question in parts. Thus first, why a fire? Let me begin by noticing something that has probably occurred to you already, namely that in Scripture the image of fire is occasionally but clearly used with some rather positive, non-destructive connotations. In the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, baptism is said to be accomplished, quote, with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And, of course, the Holy Spirit himself descends on the apostles at Pentecost as tongues of fire. Since receiving grace is a good thing, we must admit that fire in Scripture, or at least in the New Testament, occasionally betokens a blessing, in fact, healing and sanctification. It's not always a figure of retribution, destruction, and death. Sometimes it signifies new life. God, after all, renders both punishment and grace. Moreover, perhaps you're thinking about fire and burning as an image of love, specifically the emotional vehemence of love. Think of our prayer, Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of thy faithful and enkindle in them the fire of thy love. Isn't this distinctly more edifying and uplifting than the aforementioned anger, jealousy, or lust that Scripture often represents through fire? Yet, I want to mention here a conclusion regarding this idea that I tentatively came to as I began to work on this talk because it stunned me. Namely, I cannot find a single clear instance of this imagery in Scripture. Let me repeat it because it's kind of surprising. As far as I can tell, in the Bible, love and affection are never signified by fire. You won't find phrases like fires of love or burning with love or ardent heart or anything quite like them in Scripture. The closest scripture comes to fire means love symbolism is in two places in the Gospel of Luke. In the first, Christ says, I came to cast fire on the earth, would that it were already kindled. Now, this may be a fire of love, but it's not obvious that it is. Could it not also be a punitive or a purgative fire that Jesus wants to cast upon the earth? This seems at least as likely to me. And the second instance is where the apostles on the road to Emmaus say their hearts burned within them 
as the resurrected Christ opened the scriptures to them. But again, this burning is not plainly charity, though surely it involves charity. It's at least as likely that it is a burning of excitement and joy, or just a mixture of emotions, as the prophecies about Christ become luminous and the significance of the past few days become transparent to them. And this is not to deny that they had charity in their hearts, of course, as well at that moment, but only to deny that this is precisely what they are expressing when they say that their hearts were burning. Thus, it looks to me like Scripture does not seem to use, does not seem to express love through fire. It's not part of Scripture's idiom. If that's right, it'd be interesting to find out when it started becoming (laughs) an expression. Maybe it was already even before uh, the New Testament. Maybe it was used that way, but Scripture doesn't use it that way. Or maybe I'm wrong. I'll give you ten bucks if you can find an example of Scripture. It's pretty clearly saying love, representing love by fire. Okay, so that's then to say that it's unlikely that the bush's burning is meant specifically to signify the ardent love of God. That still leaves intact, however, the remote possibility that the bush is burning with the baptismal healing power of the Holy Spirit. Such an idea requires us to read a figure of speech from the New Testament back into the Old, which might be a stretch, but it's not unheard of. I'll come back to this idea, at least implicitly, after first exploring more directly the way uh, fire imagery is employed in the Old Testament. Now, I said before that fire is or symbolizes only a destructive power and usually divine retribution in the Old Testament. But this is not entirely accurate. Sometimes Scripture's fire destroys and punishes while also doing something else. In the prophecies of Isaiah in particular, we find that the divine fire serves more than one purpose, depending on the character of the object being put into the flame. (coughs) Thus, in the first chapter of Isaiah... When Yahweh says, and this is the third quote, I will vent my wrath on my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. Zion shall be reduced by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be destroyed together and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. This passage is one of many in the Bible that focuses the mind on a particularly concrete application of fire. We hear of smelting, reducing, and melting away slag that taints precious metals. The metaphor seems to be that the obstinately wicked are simply base metals, and thus, in the divine fire, they can only be liquefied, sink to the bottom, and cast into the waste heap, whereas the repentant sinner is like an ore, a precious metal alloyed with his past sins and attachments that need to be separated away in that very same fire, leaving behind only the silver of a pure soul. This figure may remind you of Malachi's famous prophecy. Uh, This is quote four. Who can endure the day of the Lord's coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver till they present right offerings to the Lord. Notice that God is described not as possessing or using a refiner's fire, but as being one. God's relation to us is such that it is as though he is a fire. St. Peter 
notably, takes, this, takes up this image in his first letter, consoling his suffering flock here below. In quote five. In this you rejoice, <clears throat> though now for a little while you may have to suffer various trials, so that the genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, which though perishable is tested by fire, may redound to praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In both Testaments, then, we are told that the divine fire is that of a refiner, and a refiner is not a destroyer except accidentally. His purpose is to cleanse, to liberate. He removes from the gold whatever dross and accretions it may have picked up during its time buried with deep within the earth. Though the metal must be subject to the flame, and St. Peter acknowledges this burning, may look no different from the punishment of the wicked, for the Christian suffering is no less real. Still, in the end, this burning is proved to be merely the gold's separation from something that is not it itself. Both the wicked and the repentant, then, must pass through the divine fire to prove their worth. The former is destroyed, which shows its nothingness. The latter is set free and thereby shows its value. Notice, moreover, that Malachi does not answer his own question about who can withstand the fires of the day of the Lord. Isaiah, however, asks a similar question, and he answers it. And thereby, he teaches us of a third purpose for the divine fires. This is quote six. And the peoples will be as if burned to lime, like thorns cut down that are burned in the fire. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us can dwell with the everlasting burnings? He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, who despises the gain of oppressions and who shakes his hands lest they hold a bribe, who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking on evil. He will dwell on the heights. His place of defense will be the fortress of rocks. His bread will be given to him. His water will be sure. Now, this is remarkable. The righteous man, then, is not only not destroyed by this fire, he is not even purified by it. He's already pure gold, so the refiner's fire can do nothing to harm or even change him. The just man can actually dwell, Isaiah says, and be at home within such a fire, even if it be everlasting. Fire is in no sense destructive or even painful for him. This comfort in what might appear as hellfire to the wicked recalls the story of Nebuchadnezzar and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When they were cast into the sevenfold heated fiery furnace, after refusing to worship Nebuchadnezzar's idol, they were unharmed. Rather, quote, they walked about in the midst of the flames, singing hymns to God and blessing the Lord. This note is right after several of Nebuchadnezzar's own soldiers themselves burst into flame as they came too near the furnace to cast the three youths into it. So the same fire destroys the wicked, but in the end leaves the pure unhurt. Yet the point of the story from the book of Daniel is not that if, one, if only one were holy enough, he would be fireproof and would feel no pain when scorched, whether by ordinary fire or by divine trials. Thus, not even Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego expect to live with a devouring fire, though they recognize that God has the power to save them if he wants to. 
Rather, they expect to be consumed by the fire, and thus they cry out, May we be accepted as though it were with the burnt offerings of of rams and bulls. Such may our sacrifice be in thy sight this day, and may we wholly follow thee, for there will be no shame for those who trust in thee. Recall that at this point in Israel's history, temple sacrifice has ceased. The three youths at this time thought of themselves as a humble replacement then for the sin offering of rams and bullocks. In other words, they thought they were about to be martyred. The harmlessness of the flames no doubt surprised them as much as it did Nebuchadnezzar, and thus they praised God from within the furnace. It was, in fact, a miracle. Now that suggests that this third function of the divine fire of which Isaiah speaks, the consuming fire that does not in any way consume the righteous man, an everlasting fire where such a man will take up his abode, this function is not normally fulfilled here below. For immediately after proclaiming that only the just man can live within such a fire, Isaiah indicates where this happens. This is quote 8. Your eyes will see the king in his beauty. Look upon Zion, the city of our appointed feasts. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, a quiet habitation, an immovable tent. But there the Lord in majesty will be for us, a place of broad rivers and streams. The Lord is our king. End quote. This image of the location and condition of the righteous soul abiding in a consuming fire that does not consume is clearly eschatological. Thus, it is in the new Jerusalem where Yahweh is beheld in majesty as a king, a city of fire that is also a city of tranquil rivers populated only by souls made pure in the refiner's fire here below. One might say then that not only hell but even heaven can be likened to a place of fire, but obviously fire of a radically different sort. Now let us return to the burning bush. It seems that we have at least half of our answer to the question, why a burning bush? Recall that what Moses is drawn to about the bush is not its heat or its light, but the fact that it does not seem to burn the bush. Thus, two possible interpretations of the Exodus incident present themselves. This is either a purifying fire, for such a fire burns off slag, but it leaves the precious metal intact, or this is a beatifying fire, a flame that is the home of, and therefore perfectly hospitable to, what it engulfs. Thus, the fire part of the burning bush theophany, and especially its non-destructive character, make a certain sense, even if our understanding is still somewhat indeterminate. But this, of course, does not explain why it's a bush that's burning yet not burning. Indeed, to follow the image from Isaiah, the bush would have to correspond to either the righteous man or the penitent sinner. And it does not immediately strike one as an apt metaphor for either. Indeed, consider the Hebrew, consider that the Hebrew scholars tell us that although the particular species of bush signified by the relatively rare word for bush here, senna, has not been identified still, the usage of the word as well as related words in Hebrew and other Semitic languages indicates that it signifies some sort of prickly shrub a plant with thorns and thistles, and almost certainly not a lush or fruit-bearing bush. And as a little aside, I looked at two other non-English translations, and the word that's given is usually a word, or in both the cases I looked at, is a word that signifies a thorn bush. So for some reason, in English, our tradition is to translate this as burning bush, 
probably because of the alliteration of that. It sounds nice, burning bush, but it seems to literally mean burning thorn bush or prickly bush. This is confirmed in the two names of the mountain on which the bush is formed, found, excuse me. For the name Sinai is thought to be, to be derived from Sena, the name, the Hebrew word for bush here. So Mount Sinai might be translated the mountain of the bush. In fact, the Old Testament does not call the mountain Sinai at all until after Exodus 3. So one suspects that it has this name in reference to the burning bush. More to the point, however, the second name of the mountain, Horeb, is derived from a root that means dry, so it might be called the mountain of dryness. Since later we learn that this mountain is a three-day journey from the Nile, the great source of water in the region, it's likely that this thorn bush is a desiccated yellow shrub, itself barely alive and hardly an attractive plant. A rather surprising figure of either sanctity or repentance, no? Nevertheless, I think we're on the right track, as we can see by reflecting on the ways bushes are referenced and perhaps treated as symbols in Scripture. Unlike the imagery of fire, the imagery of bushes is neither very suggestive nor all that common in Scripture. This particular Hebrew word for bush is especially obscure because it is not one of the three most common Hebrew words for bush. Further, it appears only twice in the entire Old Testament, here in Exodus chapter 3 and at the end of Deuteronomy, where Moses is again speaking about the burning bush. In other words, the word is used only for this bush in the Old Testament. But even opening ourselves to other references to bushes in the Bible, I challenge you to recollect any other bush of note. Strain your memory. Remember any other bushes? There are a few, though. And it's remarkable that most of them are found in Genesis, the book right before Exodus. In Beersheba, there is the bush under which Hagar cast the young Ishmael to die. On Mount Moriah, there is the thicket in which the ram is caught by its horns, which Abraham then offers in Isaac's place. And a third one is perhaps alluded to more than explicitly mentioned. For the first reference to sterile plants, dry bushes, belonging more to wastelands than to gardens, is in the first garden. Amid a paradise of trees heavy with fruit of all types, the particular punishment laid upon Adam for eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil is as follows. This is quote number, uh, is that a seven or a nine? I don't know. Uh, The next quote, the Genesis quote. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. Let's pause on this for a moment. We're told in the previous chapter of Genesis that until then the earth had only produced fruit-bearing plants. The thorny plants of the field had not yet sprung up. This was in the reading just today, I think. They were instead held in reserve for man's punishment, should he sin. Notice, too, the powerful link between these bushes and death, the primary punishment for eating of the forbidden tree. Just as Adam resisted God, so will the earth, Adama, which is the Hebrew word, where the word Adam comes from, so will the earth 
from which Adam came resist him in return until he himself becomes no more than earth once again. Adam will now have to squeeze life out of the dead earth until it squeezes the life out of him. Now, you can see where I'm going. This may be a bit of a stretch, but could it be that the bush that Moses finds inflamed on Mount Sinai, if understood in terms of one of these dry and sterile thorn bushes, somehow symbolizes Adam's curse, man's largely doomed task of trying to produce sustenance from a nearly lifeless earth and his subsequent death? Before the fall, a bush like the one Moses wonders at did not exist, could not exist. Thus, it's a sort of incarnation and reminder of man's common mortal condition and of the first sin that is its cause. Just as the earth now, when left to itself, produces only such fruit, thorns and thistles, right? So man now, left to himself, can only produce death. And thus, just as it it is iconic of the curse, so too one could even say that the all-but-dead bush is a symbol of the spiritually dead and physically dying man himself. This would fit with one of the Isaiah passages we've looked at already, for you may have noticed that he said in one of those earlier quotes, chapter 33 of Isaiah, that the peoples will be like thorns cut down that are burned in the fire. He repeats this comparison of sinful man to thorn bushes in need of burning in other places as well. In Isaiah chapter 10, he says, Under his glory... A burning will be kindled, like the burning of fire. The light of Israel will become a fire, and his holy one a flame, and it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. Thus, our association of the thorn bushes of Genesis with man enmeshed in sin really, really does not seem to be forcing Scripture's symbolism. But following this out, what can we make of the fact that the bush in Exodus is burning and further, that it is not consumed. Can the sign of the curse, and even of man as cursed, be burning in the divine fire and not being destroyed? If what we have said about fire in Scripture makes sense, then apparently it can. For even combustible material, and most certainly a dry desert bush, can be set on fire and yet not be consumed, at least if rightly disposed to the fire. As we have seen, if the fire is set upon a fallen man who is ready to repent, ready to let go of his former self, allowing the old Adam to be burned off, he will not be destroyed by the flame. He will be cleansed, for penance will have been paid and the curse will be lifted. Obviously, I am connecting the burning bush with the salvific work of Christ. But I also think Moses would have understood the imagery of the burning bush, at least at first, in terms of a more imminent purifying flame. Recall that at this point in the book of Exodus, Moses' people have been suffering slavery in Egypt for at least a generation, a period Moses will later even refer to as the time of the Iron Furnace. Although one day the chosen people will be great and as numerous as the sands of the seashore and the stars of the sky and will possess the gates of their enemies, at this moment in their history, there are a multitude of slaves half alive and weak, a dry shrub of a people. And they are burning under the lash, and yet they're not being consumed. Thus, I'm suggesting that although the burning bush broadly signifies the curse human race as a whole, uh, yeah, excuse me, 
I'm suggesting that although the burning bush broadly signifies the cursed human race as a whole in the painful yet purifying flame of God, more immediately the burning bush may signify only Israel, the chosen portion of that race. Although doomed to die like the rest, and although deserving of destruction and the consuming fire, it will nonetheless endure these flames and ultimately be freed. Such a liberation for the Hebrews, however, is not complete after the ten plagues and Moses leads them forth from Egypt. The bush does not burn only when they're in Egypt. The exodus from Egypt is only the most obvious rescue that the Israelites stand in need of, and it's not the most urgent one. For their murmuring, their relapse into idolatry, and the manifold ways of carrying Egypt with them in their hearts forestall their entrance into the land of promise for 40 years. Thus, the refining and consuming fire of God stays with them. First here on Mount Sinai, the place of the original burning bush, and now in the form of a mountain itself nearly exploding with flame, and then after, for the duration of the 40 years, and the, and the pillar of fire that stands watch over the Israelites by night. Does Moses, however, see this much in the symbolism of the burning bush, that it's a sign of his people suffering now and soon to be blessed with a purifying flame? There is, in fact, a modest sign that he is making some sort of connection like this. In his final speech on the plains of Moab, just east of the River Jordan and the Promised Land itself, at the end of those 40 years, and as the Israelites are about to enter Canaan under the leadership of Joshua. For here is the only other place in the Old Testament that explicitly refers to the incident of the burning bush. In his last words, Moses singles out each tribe and speaks words of prophecy. The longest prophecy is given not to the priestly tribe of Levi, nor to Judah, the tribe of the future king and the Messiah, but to the tribe of Joseph. It reads, and this is quote 10, And of Joseph he said, Blessed blessed by the Lord be his land with the choicest gifts of heaven above and of the deep that couches beneath, with the choicest fruits of the sun and the rich yield of the months, with the finest produce of the ancient mountains and the abundance of the everlasting hills, with the best gifts of the earth and its fullness and the favor of him that dwelt in the bush." Let these come upon the head of Joseph and upon the crown of the head of him that is prince among his brothers. His firstling bull has majesty, and his horns are the horn of a wild ox. With them he shall push the peoples, all of them, to the ends of the earth. Such are the ten thousands of Ephraim, and such are the thousands of Manasseh. Those are the two sub-tribes under Joseph, right? Moses, then, is apparently associating the theophany of the burning bush with a future time of plenty, a time when nature will not require the sweat of man's brow, but will spontaneously bring forth a rich harvest. This suggests, doesn't it, that Moses, too, sees the bush roughly the way I was proposing it, namely as a sign of man and of Israel especially, groaning under the curse and of God's burning presence as a sign that the curse will be lifted when purification is complete. In fact, the language here of God as dwelling in the bush, in this Deuteronomy passage, is striking, for it almost suggests an enduring presence in the bush, as though Yahweh had chosen to make his abode in the bush. 
Indeed, the Hebrew text says that he made his home in the bush. The word choice is reminiscent of God's repeated promise in Exodus and beyond to dwell among the Israelites, which promise often ended with, they will be my people and I will be their God. It also resonates with the later language used to describe Yahweh's special presence in the temple. Is this then not further suggesting that the people of Israel is the bush in whose midst the Lord will abide, just as the column of fire was in their midst in the desert, and yet Israel will not be destroyed thereby? Okay, well, you're probably wondering, why is this prophecy about plenty in connection with the burning bush made only to the tribe of Joseph? Why not to Judah, right? Why not to Levi? The significance of Joseph and his tribe is very rich, and it deserves much more complete a look than I can give it today. But I'll say this much, perhaps to hint at a future Tudor talk, which I haven't written. This lifting of the curse, this time of plenty, is to occur in a fleshly way, as Joshua, the leader of the tribes of Joseph and of the entire people of Israel, entered the land of milk and honey. It's to occur spiritually and in truth, however, when he of whom Joshua and Joseph are but figures opens the way to the heavenly land of promise. Now, the symbolism of Joshua is obvious enough. All I need to remind you of is the fact that his name is just the Hebrew form of the name Jesus, which means salvation of Yahweh or Yahweh is salvation, something like that. A similar significance to Joseph is more subtle, but I will just point out some suggestive facts. Moses, you read, cryptically calls him the prince of the twelve brothers and tribes, though he was rejected by these brothers and left for dead. Joseph later all but reigned in Egypt and thereby saved his brothers, indeed the entire land, from famine during the lean years. Lastly, Joseph seems to bind Israel to Egypt by marrying the daughter of Egypt's priest, as it were, grafting her into the family of God, a side effect of which is that the entire tribe of Joseph is therefore half Egyptian. Israel and the Gentiles are henceforth implicitly one. Thus, the name Joseph is a Hebrew word, which means he will add to it. Maybe that's pregnant enough to convince you that Joseph is a figure of Christ and of his conquest. The main point, however, is that Joseph is the fitting recipient of this promise of blessing because of his connection with Christ, and maybe that's clear enough. For our purpose, maybe it's also just enough to see that the fact that Moses prophesies plenty to Joseph while recalling the burning bush hints that something messianic is on his mind, and thus that the burning bush reminds him of both Adam's curse and of Moses' own successor, prophesied earlier in Deuteronomy, who will be especially entrusted with God's word and who will guide and ultimately save Israel. A second piece of evidence that we might be on to something by associating the imagery of a burning bush with man's fall, purification, and ultimate salvation might be drawn from the New Testament. First, Remember how Yahweh initially identifies himself to Moses from the bush. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now look at Christ's sole allusion to the burning bush, recorded in the Gospels of Mark and Luke. In reacting to the Sadducees' attempt at entrapping Jesus with their resurrection reductio about the widow 
who consecutively married several, seven brothers. Jesus responds first by criticizing their understanding of the scriptures, and then by saying that the doctrine of the resurrection dates back to Moses. This is quote 11. And Jesus said to them, But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Thus, Christ recalls this line from Exodus, expressly mentioning the burning bush, to make a theological point to the Sadducees that they have missed. Yahweh speaks in the present tense here. Not I was, but I am the God of Abraham. Thus, Christ argues, God was not merely identifying himself to Moses, as if to say, I'm the same God as the one your forefathers worshipped a long time ago. He was further telling Moses something about those patriarchs, that they are alive even now. They too are under the curse, so they have physically died, yes, but... Death has not devoured them. Yahweh presently holds them in his hand. They have been refined here on earth and perhaps are still being refined somewhere else that we cannot see. But they can live with this consuming fire. Thus, Christ seems to be reminding the Sadducees that this declaration of the safety of the patriarchs fits with Yahweh's manifestation in a burning bush. Okay, thus, we have a plausible, if not demonstrative, interpretation of why God would appear to Moses as a burning, yet not devouring, bush. If the bush is Adam under the curse, the one who gives birth to thorns and brambles, and in a particular way, the sons of Adam, who are also sons of Israel, then the symbolism is of a purgative and therefore salvific fire, an act of grace and therefore of mercy on those who in justice deserve to be destroyed. In fact, this interpretation suggests a complementary interpretation that I will only touch on before concluding. If the fire of the burning bush is a concrete image of the divine presence, while the bush itself suggests Adam, might not the same image also hint at the divine presence in the new Adam? I wonder whether the burning bush might be a primordial prophecy of the incarnation. Along these lines, it's helpful to recall that the burning bush, at the burning bush, Yahweh says that he has come down to deliver the sons of Israel. Shortly thereafter, Yahweh uses an expression that he had never before used and rarely uses after this to describe Israel. He calls them his firstborn son. This sonship by adoption resonates with a later sonship by nature in which God comes down to deliver man and whereby a man, in fact, becomes God's firstborn son. Recall that Yahweh was present within the Israelite camp as a column of fire and cloud that guided them through the desert to the land of promise. He was even, me, even more powerfully present in the new Israel, Christ himself. Likewise, then, if the burning bush foreshadows the incarnation, this fire would not be a refining fire, but the fire of beatitude in which the righteous man is alive and well. Though this, u- this unity of the fire and the bush would be infinitely more intimate than that between the human race, or even Israel, and God. Nevertheless, this Adam will in no way be consumed, whether totally or partially. For the new Adam does not possess the accursed human nature. 
though he takes on the curse for us. He is sinless, but he became sin in our place. I'll leave you with that possibility for further reflection. As I conclude, let me mention that I let me mention that I did not begin writing this talk with the intention of ending with a moral or a spiritual admonition. This is not a sermon, and my students can tell you that I often take pains to criticize theology papers that turn into sermons. Still, I find the subject of this talk forcing me to end with an exhortation of sorts. Namely, if those committed to sin are destined to a fire of punishment and eternal destruction, then those of us eager for repentance and detachment from past sins and this world as a whole need the purifying fire, and the sooner the better. We must cry out with David, Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Burn my reins in my heart, for thy mercy is before my eyes. Perhaps some of us are in varying degrees experiencing this fire already. As we saw, St. Peter acknowledged, This fire will not feel like the warming heat of God's love, but more like the blazing furnace of his wrath and abandonment. Cauterization is a way toward healing, but it is still excruciating, physically, emotionally, or spiritually. This fire will burn in the aspiring saint's dark night of the senses without shedding enough light by which to see. But this fire, which feels like the end of all things, is not the end. It's a gateway. A gateway to the peace that is offered only when the soul is capable of receiving it. Only in that third fire, the fire that is the resting place of the righteous soul. There the souls that have suffered the purifying fire rejoice in a fire that now feels different, a fire that is all light and life and neither destruction nor trial. As David says in the psalm, there the righteous souls are, quote, planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bring forth fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to show that the Lord is upright. Just as green wood and living plants do not burn well because of the waters of life within them, the vivification that is grace is the reason the righteous soul can live with the consuming fire without being consumed. For the only consuming that the heavenly fire does is make the soul like itself. Just as the purified metal becomes molten, luminous, and so fire-like that it is hard to say that it is not fire too. In a similar way, the graced soul is taken into the Trinity's inner life, and there it becomes blessed, for it has become one with the fire. Let me add as an epilogue a selection from T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets, as it seems to me he elegantly describes these three different fires, although they're kind of blurred together, I think. The dove descending, the dove descending breaks the air with flame of incandescent terror, of which the tongues declare the one discharge from sin and error, the only hope, or else despair, lies in the choice of pyre or pyre to be redeemed from fire by fire. Who then devised the torment? Love. Love is the unfamiliar name behind the hands that wove the intolerable shirt of flame which human power cannot remove. We only live, only suspire, consumed by either fire or fire. And all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. When the tongues of flame are enfolded into the crowned knot of fire, and the fire and the rose are one. Thank you. Thank you.